This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will Davis, a distant relative of Shrews. I'm Leah Richards and boy do I eat a lot of beetles. Do you? In the, the fiction of this intro I do. I Have I ever eaten a beetle? I'm sure my mum would be able to tell you. Okay, well why are we these slightly hedgehog-ish things? We'll get to that in a couple of stories time. But first, we have some new science for you to start off this brand new month and this brand new episode coming to us from the Acoustical Society of America, with one of the most confusing press release titles I have ever seen, Restaurant Acoustics That Schmeckt. For the benefit of those of us who don't have a German A-level, could you uh, elaborate? Schmeckt is about taste. If you want to say that something is very tasty, you go, schmeckt gut. And that's what I believe the Acoustical Society of America is trying to get at when they are talking about acoustics that schmeckt. They've done some research into just how much noise is palatable in a restaurant setting. And indeed, what kind of noise is palatable in a restaurant setting? This is about some work that's been done into the specific requirements of acoustics in a place where you're trying to eat. Not too loud so that you can hear what people are saying, not too quiet so that you feel like people are listening in to you, and they have come up with a new set of international standards organisation guidelines for defining, measuring and evaluating soundscapes. Now soundscapes make up a lot of life for people who can hear. There's lots of ways that you can try and encourage different brain activity based on soundscapes. There's all kinds of generators out there for generating tones to activate different brain waves, or if you enjoy the whole coffee thing working in a restaurant or cafe environment, then there are sound generators to have a cafe sound going on behind you. Other research has previously shown that having this kind of disfluence, some way that the noise around you slightly disrupts your way of thinking, it can encourage creativity and it can also influence consumer habits. I have also heard it called pink noise and it's recommended by a lot of people as a way of dealing with certain tendencies of neurodivergency, like I can't really deal with dead silence, so background noise helps. I've spent a lot of the last week at work listening to a train noise generator, just a soft of the tracks. Kind of helps drown out all of the awful Spotify radio, because I really do not care that much for chill hop and relaxing beats. It's the same song for like three hours, and that's maddening to me. Yeah, I have some negative associations, having spent many hours of my life aboard trains up and down this great country of ours, especially changing at New Street in the snow when they were still building the new concourse. Good gods, that was rough. New Street has, is, and probably will remain something of a measure of just human endurance. How long can you stand? Not just in the station, just how long can you stand? There's barely any seating. But enough about our experience with trains and noise, let's cut over to Klaus Genuit, I believe that's how this is pronounced, an acoustic consultant, who says that a soup might be delicious, but you can't answer this by knowing the temperature of the soup. It is the same with restaurant soundscapes. You need a lot more information than just noise level. Which then leads on to another quote, like you mentioned, about having the right amount of noise to not make it too noisy around you or to hear everybody else when he says, compared to a classroom where everyone can hear the teacher, this is the opposite for restaurant acoustics. I don't want to hear the people at the table beside me, and I want to have acoustical privacy so they don't hear me. You don't feel comfortable if it's too quiet. 
and definitely I know some people who make as much noise chewing as seems to be possible to come out of a human body, so having less noise coming from them is great. I spend so much time editing out mouth noise in any one of these episodes, you can only imagine how that is when there's salad on the table. There's some value in earwigging on the conversation of the people next to you. You can hear all sorts of things. I'm sure there have been great strides in diplomacy and statesmanship that have come from listening in to the other guy at the table beside you to find out where the uranium is being transported at night or whatever. Oh, I mean, I was just thinking, and they were roommates. Oh my god, they were roommates. The measurements that Genuit and his team have taken in order to inform this new ISO standard has, for the first time, included the required use of binaural sound recording for room evaluation. Which makes sense, because sound doesn't come to you just mono. We're probably going to be exporting this in mono because the file size is a lot smaller and we only have so much storage. If you want to hear more about the science of binaural audio, there's an episode of Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet, which you can find on Twitter at WhyNotADoc, who do a whole thing about binaural they tinker with, going in one ear, coming out the other. Best to listen to with headphones. Doing it out loud. You're not going to get the full effect. Also, it's weird because it's lots of Alex Lathbridge whispering into your ear, and that's a very intimate experience you shouldn't be doing at work. <laughs> not to say you should be whispering into anyone's <laughs> ear at work, or Alex should be whispering into anyone's ear. You know what? That's up to him. That's It's his show. It's his workplace. I don't feel the need to get any more involved than that. I'm just wondering if it's okay to discuss your feelings about an acquaintance's voice whispering in your ears. He's got a lovely voice, and he uses it in the podcast. Again, that's Why Not A Doc on Twitter, and Why Aren't You A Doctor Yet? Just bobbing backwards and forwards between the different microphones, like, hi. So for the binaural thing, Genuit does say that for a complex sound situation where you have lots of sources from tinkling cutlery to music and conversation, the selectivity of human hearing works only with binaural recording. Genuit goes on to explain that while a rough rumbling coming from a car to NASCAR race can be exciting, it's not the same if it's the air conditioner at the cafe. And loud rumbling noises hopefully aren't your dining experience. If they are, then you might be in the dining car on a first great western train, heading north from New Street Station, stopping at, well, pretty much everywhere. It feels like it takes forever. You see how much I can reel off. Um, Wolverhampton, Stafford, Stoke-on-Trent, Crewe. Manchester Piccadilly, Liverpool Lime Street, and so on, and so on, and so on. <laughs> I took that route a lot. <laughs> I spent a lot of time on the West Coast Main Line while I was at university. I spend a bit less on the West Coast Main Line these days, but we do still fairly frequently do the bit between Bristol Temple Meads and Cheltenham Spa, so... Mm -hmm. Occasionally a Malvern or two, but not as often. That goes for the trains as well. And what does this mean for you at home, dear listener? Well, if you are in the habit of being in a five-star restaurant, then you might find that five-star restaurant soundscapes become available, that they are reshaping their restaurant, maybe even reshaping some practices to make sure that you are having the most acoustically delicious experience possible. And if you are indeed doing some earwigging, then enjoy the starter, nurse that drink, and find out just what they got up to after the party. I'm intrigued, though, by this mention in the press release that loud air conditioner noise is among the most annoying sounds in American restaurant soundscapes. I guess this is just because we live in a country where air conditioning has not historically been super necessary, you know, until global warming kicked in and we're sweltering through every summer now. But 
I would not imagine the whirring of an air conditioner would override like anything unless I was sat right in front of it. I can only imagine that a lot of people tune it out and everyone else is maddened by it. Or maybe because air conditioners have been a thing for a lot longer in the US, the ones they do have are older than the ones I encounter in my day-to-day. That must make the entire state of Florida very annoying then, because that whole state would be uninhabitable without air conditioning. You mean, apart from the mosquitoes, the alligators in your pool, and the Floridians? Uninhabitable, yes. (laughs) Speaking of modern technology, we can head on over to some research from the University of Washington, who are looking at the very most modern of technology for the very most modern of people. Kids these days are always playing with some newfangled gadget or phone or iPad or... TikTok? Snapchat? Those aren't really gadgets in and of themselves, but I'll forgive you for that confusion because you are 30 now. I am so old. Old enough that many of my peers are having children of their own, and that's terrifying unto themselves. And now that I'm into what is, I mean, really definitively my late 20s, you might expect that I'd be looking at young people and going, what is, what? What is going on with the children of today? What are the kids doing? And yeah, absolutely, there's stuff that I'm just like, this is beyond me. But they seem to have their heads screwed on. Mostly the kids do seem alright, and if they're not right, they'll let you know, especially about the fears and concerns they have over new technology. Because what the University of Washington researchers are doing is they're digging into what children mean when they say that a new technology that they are interacting with is creepy. Creepy has kind of a lot of associations that you might think, oh, it's spooky, or it makes me feel unsettled, or I don't know what it's going to do next. And these are the kind of individual identities within Creepy that they are trying to pick apart. The researchers noted that children were using Creepy as an adjective for new technology where adults might be more specific, so they wanted to tease out exactly what they were getting at. They conducted four separate design sessions to see if when children describe technology as creepy, they meant some sort of ambiguous threat, since that was a pattern that had been noticed with adults. The sessions had 11 children, aged between 7 and 11, prototyping technologies or ranking real or imagined technologies as creepy, not creepy, or don't know. The most significantly creepy and most recurrently creepy were those that could bring about physical harm, or disrupt an important relationship. And yeah, I agree that anything that could harm me, or other people, or disrupt the relationships that I have with people is creepy. People who do that are creepy. A technology that can do that is creepy. If anything ever was capable of doing that, it would be creepy. I don't want that to happen. Especially not if it's coming from a a fortnight or whatever. Co-author Alexis Hineker does mention, when we were brainstorming about what kids were going to be worried about, we never considered that they might be concerned that somehow technology would get between them and their parents, and that this would be such a salient issue in their minds. It was, as you said, the physical harm and the potential to disrupt important relationships that came up most consistently, and I think we don't necessarily give kids credit for understanding how important it is to maintain good relationships with their parents. I think possibly because so many people do have bad relationships with their parents. There's a lot more nuance here than you could really expect to have from design sessions with kids. And the way that the researchers stratify all of this out is five properties that lead to fear, anxiety, some kind of creepy experience. 
noting that kids want to understand how technology works and what information a device is collecting. They want to separate that there is a transparency. They are not on board for data deception. For example, when a child asked a digital voice assistant if it would kill him in his sleep, and it said, I'm afraid I can't answer that. The child was concerned. The child was rightly concerned if Alexa, Siri, Cortana, whoever said, I might kill you in your sleep, I might not, let's find out. That's not a good way to start your experience with modern technology. Yeah, I mean, you ask any other human being, let alone a robot, will you hurt me? And they go, I can't answer that. You're expecting them to hurt you. Alarm bells ringing. You should be ringing alarm bells and leaving the building and meeting at the preordained fire escape area. Robot escape area? Do we have? We should start having robot drills. Oh god, you're right. <laughs> and I don't mean drills that are robots. I mean drills for <laughs> Those are the exist. eventual rise of the robots. In case of singularity, please <laughs> follow the signposts to the. Isle of Wight, I guess. That seems like a good place to go. Surrounded by water. Very bad internet access. Yeah, consistently about 20 years behind the times. Also, kids might be intimidated or off-put by an ominous physical appearance. Because that's what an ominous physical appearance <laughs> describes. It's not a good way to look if you don't look good. They have mentioned in that section traditionally scary-looking technologies, and I'm wondering exactly what they mean by that. Like, Cybermen? Now they say here, Maslow, an app with a large black dot as its interface, it looks like a black spirit or a black hole. You know what's a traditionally scary looking technology? HAL 9000, which is a black circular interface. I don't think that's the kind of traditionally scary that they're talking about. They specifically say that doesn't mean that only traditionally scary looking technologies. HAL 9000 is scary because it doesn't emote. Maslow is scary because it looks like a black hole. But what is, by this definition, a traditionally scary-looking thing? And the only thing that really leaps to mind is Daleks and Cybermen and other assorted sci-fi monsters. The kind that might be a robot butler one minute, but has glowing red eyes and sharp teeth the next. The butler did it. The butler always did it. Kids are also concerned about a lack of control. And this is a very nuanced understanding of control and privacy here on the part of the children involved. The press release reads that kids want control of technology's access to their information and the flow of that information to their parents. For example, when kids were asked to design a technology that was trustworthy, some of the children designed an intelligent trash can that both scanned and deleted their facial recognition data each time they used it. There's also a button for manual deletion of data. This comes at a time in our lives, in everyone's lives, when private and public companies are building up vast databases of facial recognition data. There was, in fact, a news release that came out just a couple of weeks ago about a university that was trialing some facial recognition technology in its cameras, and they were doing that without consent of students involved. It was just scanning everyone who came down the corridor. It's time to embrace the cyberpunk future and start painting dazzle patterns on our faces. It's also festival season in Bristol, so there will be so dazzling works. face paint. That's not quite what I mean by a dazzle pattern, but certainly. It's a good start. There's also the essence of unpredictability in technology, which kids weren't on board with. Quote, Kids don't like it when technology does things unexpectedly, like automatically knowing their name. Or laughing. And that does tie back into the uh, data control thing. I mean, how much does it bother you when Facebook pops up with new adverts based on a recent change of status? I've heard multiple people mention that 
after you've changed your relationship status on Facebook to married, it suddenly starts showing you adverts for baby stuff. Last time I removed my relationship status from Facebook, it suddenly started telling me all about dating apps. Lastly, the children are averse to mimicry. So if you pile all of these things together, the idea that kids would be upset by new technology that will take information and not let you know what information it has taken, that will not tell you it won't murder you in your sleep, that looks scary, that is not under your control, that acts unpredictably and then mimics you. This is just the T-1000. This is absolutely, (laughs) this is Skynet Central. These kids have seen Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And they are right to be afraid. (laughs) I did also mention that adults had some influence over whether or not children thought specific devices were creepy. They mentioned some kids saying that smartphones weren't creepy because their parents used them, so they must be fine. Just wait till those kids grow up and realise that adults are clueless. Consistently. Another child described the laptop camera as creepy because their parents kept a piece of paper taped over it to keep robbers away. An interesting cultural touch point here is that the kids reference the film Coraline, which, like, it's a pretty recent film, but I'm surprised that these kids have actually seen it. Yeah, it's not so recent that I would expect lots of uh, 7 to 11 year olds to have seen it. I think it had more impact culturally in the US than it did here. But again, I was slightly over the target age when it came out. I'd read the book sort of five years earlier. It's, it's a spooky story. Apparently the kids referencing the movie Coraline would say something that the dolls would ask Coraline, the main character, to make a change. If you sew buttons over your eyes and become just like us, we will love you forever. This prompts a feeling of... Wait, what? Sew buttons over... What am I compromising here? I have a lot more trust in the children involved in this experiment than... I mean, most of the children I've met, but then most of the children I've met recently have been still in their swaddling clothes, so I don't know what to make of them yet. Anyway, from the University of Washington, thank you for doing this research. Can we stop making the scary robots now? Can we all agree that if the kids are freaked out, we probably shouldn't do this to them? Yeah, we can avoid this by just having, like, TVs that don't constantly listen to you. Oh, whoops, the digital assistant which we've put into your house to listen to you all of the time is accidentally listening to you all of the time. But it's okay, because the children have sense. I've got, I've got confidence in Generation Z. Centennials, I think I've also heard them called. I think they're gonna handle it. Well, it seems like we can't trust any of the older generations to get anything sorted out, so yeah. And millennials have got quite a lot of learned helplessness to work through. Hopefully we're doing our part to help with that by informing so many of you. We are millennials. I imagine most of our audience is also in a similar age bracket, so thank you and you're welcome. If you're not a millennial, maybe say hello. Tell us what generation you do consider yourself a part of. And if you enjoyed The Clash the first time around. Anyway, enough about scary technology. I think we should spend some time getting back to nature. And I hope everyone listening to the podcast will take a moment to go and look at the third story in the reading list now. Head on over to the press release from the Wildlife Conservation Society and look at this animal. Meet the Tenrec. Tenrex of themselves are not news. That's a family of small mammals found only on the island of Madagascar, which superficially resemble hedgehogs, but aren't actually very closely related, and also have just lots and lots of nipples. 
that's a mammal fact for you. The animal with the most nipples is one particular species of tenrec, which can have up to 22, which is really a lot of nipples. That's 11 times more nipples than I have. I'm really glad we didn't go with these as your introduction. <laughs> but yes, this paper isn't very much to do with any research about the tenrec as such, just raising awareness. There is a little bit of research. While the existence of Tenrex isn't news to the scientific community, it might be news to you, in which case you are welcome. The conservation priorities for the 31 species of Tenrex have been reviewed, and six of them found to be threatened, four vulnerable, two endangered, and one they weren't able to make a judgement about its conservation status because they just didn't have enough information. And uh, they just want to let you know that they're there. Lemurs get a lot of press on Madagascar. Maybe also look into these little spiny nipply guys as well. I mean, with a selling point like that, who could say no? Madagascar, it's a treasure trove of biodiversity, of environments, of species. And also, these guys got just like a lot on their chest. A lot of chest action happening down here. So don't come check them out, because tourism and habitation loss is probably a very big part of why these species are becoming endangered. Donate to your local Tenrec. Support the Tenrecs in your life. And the ones out of your life. Support conservationists who want to save Tenrecs. <laughs> They're insectivores. Insectivores are important, or we'd be under just so many beetles. Which would be alright for you then, I guess. As I said, I don't remember eating any beetles. So it's not happened in the last, you know, 24 years. In other biological news, you may be familiar with the use of fruit flies in biology as a genetic model, as a way of basically trying to just put genes into things and see what they do, take genes out and see what doesn't happen now. You know, on account of they breed really, really quick and they're cheap. But fruit flies are useful for modelling all kinds of things, not just genetics. For example... Researchers at the University of Illinois at Chicago and Loyola University in Chicago can now report that malnourished fruit flies have been found to prioritise keeping their genitals as large as possible to ensure reproductive success, no matter their food situation. They have compared this to the situation with mammals, humans in particular, whose body size may be smaller if they are underfed, but the head remains pretty consistently sized. I don't know what that says about the relative size of individuals' heads, because yours is really, really big and mine is not. But in contrast to that, they have taken a look at fruit flies and discovered that they just continue growing the junk. They prioritise growing the junk when food conditions are a little bit more difficult. And sympathy for the fruit fly, whose life expectancy is about 45 days. Reproductive stresses are pretty much all you've got to do. You grow up, you realise you can fly, think, oh, this is fun, and then there's two weeks until the end of the world. Spread your genes, continue the species. We need more flies in the world, I guess. The flies need more flies in the world. Maybe the Tenrex too? Insectivores need more flies in the world. Depending on where we go with using insects as a protein source and possibly animal feed in the future, we genuinely just might need more flies. So, if they've only got 45 days to get to it, I'm sure they will be very pleased to know that, even when they are underfed, the negative growth factor, called FOXO, goes through a negative regulation. That is to say that the growth factor which 
would make their body parts shrink, which makes the human body parts shrink when we are underfed, that would diminish the rest of the fly's body, doesn't happen in the genitals. Keeping everything as ready to go as possible? I'm trying to talk around this so we don't have to pick up an explicit tag on iTunes, but um, they are armed and ready. Getting kind of uncomfortable to talk about this much fly genitalia. Actually. I'm actually really enjoying, though, the phrase male genital sparing. That's somebody something. Something you can only find on very specialist websites, you know. Please do not look that up on our account. I hope this research hasn't made you discover anything about yourself. That would be awkward. If it has, then let us know. Send us an email, eurigonerdcast at gmail.com. You really don't have to. Please don't sign it. I don't want to know any more about you than I really have to. But if you want to know more about this, then yes, head to those researchers from the universities in Chicago. The research here by Alexander Shingleton and colleague Austin Dreyer is published in the journal Biology Letters. Now, after all of this time talking about threatened biology, terrifying technology, and fly junk, we might as well touch on one final fear, I suppose. Political disinformation campaigns are all the rage. They've been growing in popularity in the West for some time now. They've been all over the news. Mostly because I guess they become the news. And then kind of take over the news. It's not a great scene when you can't trust a lot of the media in your life and in your particular slice of the world. The good news, possibly, is that maybe there isn't as much disinformation that really affects you as you'd expect. This research has come from the University of Waterloo in Canada, who have found a handful of factors that might serve in some ways, to inoculate populations against efforts to disrupt political systems by spreading misinformation. Now, I would suggest that we've got some counterpoints? Mm -hmm. that's, that's one way of framing it. The research here by Alexander Lenoshka, Assistant Professor in Political Science at Waterloo, he highlights three obstacles in the way of campaigns of disinformation. Firstly, he outlines a fundamental scepticism within potentially targeted countries when an adversary broadcasts information. Which the adversary then overcomes by pretending to be somebody else, often on Twitter. When the disinformation is coming from within your country, what do we do about that? The second obstacle is the prevalence of deeply ingrained identities and political attitudes among targeted political elites and ordinary citizens, which is fine, and people do have a tendency to hold tightly to the opinions they currently hold. What if the disinformation campaign is directly appealing to those deeply held and ingrained political beliefs? No matter what you do, people do change their minds about stuff. Sometimes it happens. You get some new information, you change your mind, or everyone around you is suddenly saying one thing, so you think, well, if everyone else is saying it, maybe they've got a point. And lastly, that countermeasures can be enacted by a targeted country, such as the Canadian's government's forewarning of potential election interference. So, what if you are forewarned about political interference, and then that information is not acted on? But you can say, oh, we definitely detected political interference in, say, this election that happened in Britain in 2016, and then there's no consequence to that. So, I don't know, we'll see how that shakes out, I guess. I guess we'll see how that shakes out. At least we've got a guide for what to do with political disinformation. 
but it also then could be taken as a means for trying to discredit and disavow any information that you just don't want to be involved in the political debate. If you instead try and frame any information that you'd like to reject as foreign influence, like saying that, I don't know, global warming was a myth invented by the Chinese, <coughs> and that it is targeting the political attitudes of an elite, a selected citizens saying that you've got all of these never-Trumpers, you've got all of these Ramonas, or whatever, and lastly that there are countermeasures that can be enacted, and you frame this as, aha, yes, that's exactly what we should do. We should make our country great again. We should take back control. If Alexander Lenoshka would like to talk about this bleak, bleak future which I am contemplating now with us, then maybe he could drop us a line at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. If anyone else would like to share in our dystopian fantasies, then find us on Twitter, at EurekaNerdcast. I don't know if fantasy is really the right term. Nightmare? Yeah. Or just life. We've got the facial recognition robots who will laugh at us and not promise that they won't murder us in our sleep. We've got a lot of flies. I guess it, this does all sound bad, which we can bring back to the first story. I think that's a pretty neat sweep. At least there are ten racks. At least there are ten racks. For the moment, anyway. If you'd like to find out any more about any other science, then head over to Stimulus.network for some more science-y goings-on from the likes of The Cosmic Shed, Inside the Petri Dish podcast, and For What It's Earth. You can also listen to The Spooktator, whose host, Hayley Stevens, did a guest spot on our previous episode. If you enjoy the show and you want to lend us a little bit of financial support, you can make a donation to our Ko-fi. But just before we let you go into the sweltering sunshine of this bright June day, which is when we're recording it, we imagine that's mostly when you're listening to it, if you're listening to this in the future, it's not June anymore, and the robots haven't taken over, then... Great, we're on to a winner. In the meantime, did you know that tobacco and e-cigarette promotions spark teen use of nicotine products? This is not news, but it's nice to have another piece of research to add to the pile. It might as well just read, did you know, advertising and that the University of Cincinnati finds that hot days lead to wildfires. I guess it's nice to have it written down? More fire when hot. Now, I'm not an ecologist, but, uh, yeah, that tracks. But until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network. Old enough that many of my peers are having children of their own, and that's terrifying unto themselves. And what is also terrifying... I've got some news for you. <laughs> okay, that was just a joke. But... <laughs> well... I know what I'm putting at the end of this episode. <laughs> My unending screaming. <laughs> you managed to do it silently, so it didn't pick up on the microphones, though. I went ultrasonic. You just, you just crumpled into yourself. I ascended to a higher plane of being. In which you were made of pure panic? Mm. We have not tidied enough. I don't think I can tidy enough. Uh, a child to fit into this flat and this life. I have so much tidying to do. <laughs> Shall we get back to the... <laughs>